uh, if you've been following along with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. We've got one more week after this. Now, I think we started this about the 1st of June, maybe end of May sometime. So we've been going through the book of Acts for a long time. And boy, I've just really enjoyed it. It's a unique book in the Bible. Uh, it's not one of the four Gospels, but it really is tells the story of the, the first apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven and what went on. And we learn a lot about the early church. And I've, I've just really enjoyed the process of diving in uh, and learning. So we're going to do that. Last week we're talking uh, about Paul, and Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. They're trying to tear him to pieces. The Romans step in and they, they rescue him and they ask him what's going on. And so Paul's on trial. The Jews are trying to kill him, and he's being examined. So we saw that uh, he went before Felix, and we learned a little bit about Felix and that situation. And Really, what, where we're at now, beginning in chapter 25, is Paul has been under arrest in Caesarea for two years. So here we hit another one of those points where two years goes by in the book of Acts that we don't know a lot of what happened. We just know Paul's under arrest uh, in Caesarea. Felix is in charge. He keeps coming to talk to Felix. Felix is curious. You know, he seems to know a lot about the way. The Bible says that he actually is... Um, has a pretty accurate understanding of what it's about, and he keeps asking Paul about it. But he's also wanting Paul to bribe him to get him out of jail. Anybody ever tried that? Don't raise your hand. That was a joke. But it's a thing in a lot of other parts of the world. Bribery is almost what you need to get anything done in some countries, unfortunately. Uh, Very difficult, but Felix was hoping for that. Well, now we're picking up in verse 25. Felix is gone now. Two years has gone by. Uh, he has gone back to Rome, and in steps the new politician in town, Festus. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Festus is coming. He's only going to be here about two or three years. He's not going to be here long as the governor of the area, uh, but he shows up. New politician in town. He's going around. He's shaking hands. He's you know doing the politician. The, uh, hey, we're getting close to another political season, aren't we? Some you're already shaking your head. Like, don't you love it when they stand up there like, they're waking at the feet, like waving? I just remember, like, oh man. Well, that's what Festus is doing right now. He's, he's just come to town. He's a new governor, and he's visiting the villages and the cities. And just three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Caesarea is basically the capital of the area at the time. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Now remember that they these guys had taken a vow they weren't going to eat or drink till Paul was dead. Well, it's been two years. They're probably pretty hungry by now. And they're thinking, if we can get Festus to send Paul back to Jerusalem, we're going to set up an ambush to assassinate him along the way. We want this guy dead. They don't like Paul, if you didn't notice yet. But Festus says, uh, he's wanting to do them a favor, but he, but, but he still says, you've got to come back here to Caesarea and make your case. So we know that he does that. So they go there, they make their case, and... Festus doesn't know what to do, so he says to Paul, he's wanting to do them a favor. He wants to send Paul back to Jerusalem. Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? In other words, do you want to move the case to Jerusalem? How many of you pay attention to politics a little bit to know that the location of a trial matters? 
It kind of seems to be a hot button issue at the moment, which I'm not going to get into. But it matters where your trial is. You know, are you going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem for Paul? Probably not. And Paul is aware of this. And he, Paul, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Okay, what does this mean? Well, we know what appeals are in, in our justice system. Um, you know, we don't like what's going, what ruling was made, and we can appeal to a higher court. At some, time, at some points, it'll go all the way to the Supreme Court of a state or the Supreme Court of a nation. A lot of our governance is based on these concepts that, that Rome had established, and this is one of them. Paul has the opportunity to appeal to Caesar. Just, you know, just maybe 20 years before Jesus was, came to the earth and was born and then eventually died on the cross, the Romans established this law where if you were a, a Roman citizen, there was no magistrate, there was nobody in public position of power that could kill or torture or chain or even sentence a Roman citizen if they intended to appeal to Caesar. So again, Paul's citizenship as a Roman, becomes a really big deal here. Not everybody had this privilege. Most of the Jews were not citizens of Rome. It was a difficult thing to achieve, as we looked at earlier. But Paul is using this to his advantage. He knows he's not going to get a fair trial in Rome, or, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem. He may even be aware of their assassination plot. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. He has the opportunity to go and take his case before the emperor. Now, I just want to remind you that we read in previous weeks that Jesus himself stood by Paul and encouraged him. Remember, Paul's had all these attempts on his life. He's sitting there that night in prison, and the Lord appears to him and stands by him, encourages him, and says, just like you've attested to these facts in Jerusalem, you're going to attest in Rome. Paul knows he's going to Rome. This is like the most affirmed, confirmed, prophetic word a person can get. Jesus stood there and told you. So he knows this is going to happen. And so I wonder what was going on in his mind. And some people go, why did he appeal to Rome? Well, he probably had multiple motivations. First of all, he doesn't want to get killed. But second of all, he, he knows he's going to go before great people to be able to share his story and testimony, as we'll see later on in the chapters. So it's a, his intention to appeal. Now, he does have a limited amount of time for this to happen. And so Festus confers with his counsel, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So here we go. But what happens is, you know, in the Roman governing situation, they, they has a governor over the area, but there's also a Jewish king. So Rome allowed, as we've learned through the book of Acts, they allowed the Jews to do a lot of self-governance. And Agrippa is one of the Herods. Now, the Herods have been an interesting part of our travel through the book of Acts, haven't they? So this, so we had Herod the Great, then we had Herod Antipas. There were other Herods involved. I'm not going to get into that. Then there was Herod Agrippa I. So Herod the Great was the Herod that had all the babies killed in Bethlehem. He's the one in the Christmas story we read about. Herod Antipas was the one who was there when, when Jesus was crucified. 
We see Herod Agrippa I. He's the one that orders Peter to be thrown in prison. He's the one that has James executed. Now we're clear to Herod. We're four generations of Herods now from the beginning, from when Christ was born. And in this case, we have Herod Agrippa II now who's on the scene. Now, in some days it passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, how many people read this and thought, Bernice must be the queen? Must be Agrippa's wife? How many of you know that's not true? Not true, yeah, a few of us know that. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about this situation. Bernice is actually Agrippa's sister. She's one of the Herods. She's been through, at this point, I think she's been through two or three husbands. And mostly political marriages. Her first marriage was at 13, in a political marriage. They had been raised in Rome, her and Agrippa. There was a lot of rumors of an incestuous relationship between them. A lot of the historical accounts. Uh, She was dependent on him for her survival. Even after this, she goes on to marry twice more, I believe. Actually, her most famous husband is Titus, who burns the temple. In probably just about 10 years from now. 20 years from now. No, 10. Yeah, 10 years. So, interesting. So they show up in all this pomp, it says in the Bible. And, and so this is just political meeting going on. But then Festus, uh, he starts to talk to Agrippa about what's going on. There's a, and Festus, Agrippa goes, I'd like to hear from this guy. Now the Herods have not been favorable to the Christians. They weren't favorable to Jesus. They weren't favorable to John the Baptist, lost his head to them. They've got James was assassinated by them. Peter's thrown in prison by them. But they do, they are more aware of the Jewish culture and the Jewish situations, much more than these Roman guys do that are coming in. And so Agrippa says, I want to hear this guy. And Festus goes, tomorrow you will hear him. Now how many of you notice that? I just want to ask, how many of you noticed that Festus said, tomorrow you will hear from him? How many of you know that does not happen in our court system? Well, why don't you show up tomorrow to the judge and we'll talk about that. How about two years from now? I just thought that was really funny that, that Festus has come to town and he's able to hear testimony from Paul that quickly. And yeah, I just thought that I, I kind of like the guy. How about Myers-Briggs Peas out there? Go with the flow, people. Yeah, that's definitely what Festus was. For those of you that know Myers-Briggs. All right, I thought that was pretty funny. But I have a weird sense of humor, so. Agrippa says, I'd like to hear tomorrow. He says, you'll hear him. Paul shows up and, and you know, we, we catch in there that, that um, you know, Festus is saying, I've got to send this guy to Caesar, and I don't really have anything to write Caesar about him. The Jews' case isn't working. I can't find any reason to put him to death. Don't understand everything. And so Agrippa says, Paul, give your defense. And Paul raises his hand. Here's something else I just noticed. I've seen it over and over in the book of Acts, but he lifts his hand. Did you notice that? As these guys are getting ready to talk, they raise their hand to testify. And I thought, why do they keep doing that? Why do we, I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons to raise your hand. We raise our hands in worship as a submission to God, but also to, it was a, it was a sign of, uh, I'm about to give authentic testimony here. Some of the historical things, they'd do this. Anyone recognize this? They'd put their two fingers down like this. Hey, I'm about to testify. I, what I'm about to say is very sincere and serious. And, and it just reminded me about worship, 
It reminded me about we swear under oath when we um, testify in court. It's that kind of thing. Paul lifts his hand. And, and you wonder earlier, we see that the crowd becomes silent when Paul lifts his hand. It's like, I'm about, it's not like raising your hand in class, right? I think it's kind of probably lost its salt. But it's something where Paul is getting attention. He said, I'm about to say something sincere. And he begins to plead his case. He's actually really excited to talk to Agrippa. And we start to learn a lot about Paul's tactics in, in this situation. But we see in verse 26, verse 8, he's saying, look, I have only ever, my whole story is Moses and the prophets being fulfilled in Jesus. I am only testifying to the exact same thing that Moses did and the prophets did. You know, we have learned so far that every time Paul came into a city, he went into the synagogues and he reasoned with the Jews. They know Moses. They know the prophets. He uses that to begin to make his case. I think so often in our modern thinking, we kind of let go of the Old Testament, not realizing that the New Testament is built upon the facts of the Old Testament. And in fact, Paul was so well versed with the Old Testament, it was his way of convincing people that Jesus was the Messiah. Because these guys knew the Old Testament very well. They knew Moses' laws. They knew the prophecies. And he would use that to his advantage to convince the Jews. Because if anyone should believe, it was the Jews. And so he is constantly reaching out to them. And, and he says this, it's the first time I've... Notice that he says this. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's on trial because he's talking about the raising of Jesus from the dead. And of course, we talked about the Sadducees who don't believe in that. And the Pharisees who do and all the uproar that that caused. But he's like, why, does it, why do any of you find this surprising? And so he's making his case. I'm doing nothing wrong. I'm, I'm telling you what, what the scriptures say have come to pass in Christ. Why are you so surprised? And I'm just, you know, as if you think about apologetics or um, the, the process of convincing people of truth or looking into the truth, Paul's a master at this. And so when we read this part of the story, don't miss his tactics that he's using to convince people of what is true. Well, he then moves on from here and he begins to share his testimony. This is, I think, the third time we've heard this story, which I'm going to come back and reflect on it. He'd been opposed to the gospel, but then Jesus appears to him and he's converted. But his approach is, is very different. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Or maybe your translation says, your great learning is driving you mad. Now Festus, he's Roman, he's not probably going to have a tendency to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he's hearing Paul testify to all these things. What? You saw this, this godly figure appeared in all this light, and you were blind. You're crazy. Paul's like, I'm not crazy, most excellent Festus. You know, he just says back and forth is a lot of fun. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he appeals to Agrippa. <laughs> it's so fun. For the king knows about these things. 
And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's starting to target Agrippa. Agrippa's the one hearing his testimony, and he's like, this hasn't escaped your notice. I know you know the prophets. I know you know what Moses said. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. You see the salesman coming out here? So Paul's been saying, look, I've done nothing wrong. I'm testifying to all these biblical realities. Agrippa, you know this. Come on, you believe the law and the prophets, don't you? If you do, you're going to believe what I'm saying. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You kind of hear his tone here. I've tried to, I've dramatized this all week in my mind. I've had a lot of fun doing it, thinking, how would they say that? How 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 would he say this? In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Or do you say, but he's really saying, do you really think you can persuade me to be a Christian that quickly? But notice Agrippa, he's not totally rejecting it either. It's almost like he's just pondering it going, that was really persuasive, but do you think you can persuade me that quickly to be a Christian? So Paul is, he's brilliant at what he does. And his tactics are good. Notice this is not the tactic he used in Athens. Remember we talked about Athens. What was the tactic Paul used to reach people? And why does it matter? Because I'm wondering what your tactic is to reach people. And to talk to people. And how you share with others. Because Paul was very well thought out and educated in it. you know, And we don't necessarily all have that. But what kind of tactics do we employ to further the kingdom? When Paul got to Athens, he couldn't use Moses and the prophets. He couldn't use the Old Testament to make his case. So he had to appeal to other things of understanding in order to get the people at Athens to listen to him. They also thought he was crazy when he started talking about the resurrection of the dead. But some of them listened. They wanted to hear more. This is where we can really say very clearly when Paul says of himself, to the Jews I become a Jew that I might win some. To the Greeks I become a Greek that I might win some. Paul's doing whatever he can to get this message out there and get people to believe he tries to save the king in his trial. This guy's awesome and an inspiration to all of us on what he's able to do and how clever he is and wise. We, are, we would do good to take note. Well, as soon as this trial is coming to an end, Um, Paul says these words, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's passion is for people to be saved. His passion is for people to accept the the message of Jesus Christ. So Agrippa kind of teases him, you think you can convince me to be a Christian that fast? And Paul says, I wish all of you would become Christians that fast, whether, whether today or lo- if it takes me longer. I want you all to be like me, believe like me, except for these chains you've got me in. Man, that tells us a lot about the heart of this man. And hopefully encourages us and motivates us. Well, apparently they're pretty persuaded because the situation adjourns. And they say to themselves, this guy didn't do anything to deserve death or imprisonment. But since he appealed to Caesar, he still has to go to Caesar. He's made this legal plea. He's stated something that is not going to be reverted by 
Festus or Agrippa. They can't stop it now. He's a Roman citizen. He has every right to appeal to Caesar. Could have been set free. I want to go back to Paul's testimony, and for the rest of the message today, I want to focus in on Paul's third telling of his testimony. And I want to focus in particularly on one part of it that um, we haven't spent a lot of time on, I don't think, thus far, but I think is really, really helpful to us as believers. And when Paul's giving his stories, you know, he's marching to Damascus. He's got orders to arrest Christians and persecute them. He was a big persecutor of Christians, as we've learned early on in the book. But for those of you that are unaware, when, when, when he was prior to him giving his life to Christ, to becoming a believer, he was a persecutor of Christians. And he's on a mission to go arrest some more, and Jesus appears to him. And a big light shines around him, and he falls to the ground. We pick up the story in uh, chapter 26, verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is another name for Paul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard. How many of you know the Johnny Cash song, When the Man Comes Around? Oh, come on. There's got to be more of you than that. Don't make me sing it, all right? Or if you're familiar with your King James Version, what it says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. When I heard the Johnny Cash song the first time, I was like, what? What is he talking about? But what he's referring to, did you just preach about Johnny Cash in a message? Yes, I did. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What is a goad? Let's start with that. What is a a goad literally? Well, the word goad is the idea of a sting, like a bee sting, or a scorpion sting, or a sting that even causes death. But, but what it became known for is a goad was an instrument used in livestock. It's a stick with a point on it, basically. A really sharp end. And when you wanted the sheep or the ox or whatever animal to go a certain direction, you poke them and they go. Some of us need a little sting before we move. And that's where it comes from. And Jesus is saying to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. So what would happen is if, like with oxen, they'd have... They'd have the goad with the point on it, and if the ox keeps kicking against it and not going where he wants, the worse it hurts. It's, it's a way of steering them and making them do what you want. There's a passage in Judges chapter 3 I thought was interesting. We'll skip this story here. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This is in the book of Judges. An ox goad must have been bigger than a sheep goad. He managed to get that many Philistines with it. It was literally a physical instrument. But then it comes to mean something much more in Scripture. It becomes metaphorical, right? The words of the wise are like goads and and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Wisdom is like a goad for us. Something that helps us stay on the path we need to or prompt us in the right direction. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes we only have to see the goad to move. After you've been poked by it a few times, you stop. You kind of go, I'm going to stay away from that thing. 
I'm going to go the opposite direction. And so when words of wisdom come, it helps get us on the path we need to be on or straighten out some poor behavior that we need to straighten out. And, and really, ultimately, for us to be moldable in God's hands, he goads us. He was goading Paul. Paul was in total rebellion against Jesus. And Jesus is like, quick, quick kicking against the goad. This is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. I want you to go a different direction. I'm stepping in now in a powerful way to goad you a different way. <clears throat> well, there's so many things we can learn for ourselves. Giving direction something with a bit of a sting. You know, we talk often about parents raising children. Sometimes after a while you say, okay, go ahead and put your finger in a light socket. Let's see what happens. Tired of telling you. A little bit of pain is what you need to learn. A little bit of discipline. It's not always pleasant, is it? When we fight against it, when we fight against God, it just gets more and more painful. God's not afraid. I, I've joked about it before. God will give you a whooping. If he has to, because he loves you. Because he wants to steer you in his way, in his direction. And that's what he wanted for Paul. And actually he had great intentions for Paul. Look at what Paul went on to do. Jesus was like, I'm okay poking this guy with a stick a little bit to get him going the right direction because he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. I wonder, is God goading you today? Has he been goading you this week? poking at you a little bit, going, hey, let's make an adjustment. Let's go this way. Let's, let's go that way. Maybe it's not painful. Maybe it's just subtle. Maybe it's just some words of wisdom you've heard, and you feel like God's trying to turn your attention a different way, or steer you on a little bit different path, or prompt you to get involved in something in another way. God is a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. It's funny, you know, these goads are used for oxen, I think horses even. Uh, unfortunately, we always get tagged as sheep. I mean, yeah, we're the wild stallions, right? We're like tough oxen. Actually, we're just sheep. I'm so bummed by that. But it's so real. We're just not that impressive. Sheep can be hard. Sheep don't listen. We've got all the sheep jokes. We can talk about all how we... Bah, that's what we do. Just tell us what to do. We'll go our own way anyway. It could be difficult, but God is a good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. You know, being a shepherd can be hard work. Trying to steer a herd of sheep the way you want them to go. Maybe that's why ranchers give up on sheep and just stick with cattle. Or a cow's worse than sheep. I don't know. No. All the ranchers in the room are like, no. Sheep are bad. Did you ever see that? A few years ago, they found, it was like in the Middle East somewhere, they found that sheep that lived in a cave. Have you ever heard of wild sheep? I mean, wi again, wild horses. That sounds cool. There's wild oxen. Yeah. And wild sheep. What? They found this wild sheep was living in a cave in the Middle East. It was humongous. It hadn't been sheared in years. It was like five times the size it was supposed to be. Anybody see that? Yeah, okay, you saw it. Thank you, you're with me. I'm like, man, sometimes I have these examples that everyone's like, what? 
He needed to be shorn, 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 shaved, sheared. He needed to visit a pair of shears. And we need that. We are so dependent on a shepherd. When left to our own devices, when we become our own shepherd, we're pretty bad at it. Bad at it. I didn't even plan that. (laughs) I didn't even plan that. It's the Holy Spirit, I think, probably. Yeah. Anyway, moving right along. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. You ever get where you just can't rest, you can't settle down, life is stressful and chaotic, there's no rest, there's no peace. But our good shepherd, what does he do? He takes us to places of peace. He knows where we should lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. This is what he did with Paul. Paul was a stray. But God has something in mind, and he brings him back. You know, we know the parable in Luke 15 of the the shepherd leaving the 99 to get the one sheep back. And he celebrates the one sheep. And all of heaven celebrates the one sheep returning. The one who repented. When one of us repents, heaven celebrates. God is a good shepherd. I will bind the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. He's just among us. He will, he will straighten out the messes if we let him be the shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray, it says in Isaiah. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was prophetic of Jesus. This was way before Jesus' time. But it anticipates a shepherd who will take all the iniquity of the sheep, all the sin of the sheep, upon himself. And all of us have done this. We know that Romans reaffirms this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us make mistakes. All of us rebel. And yet we have this shepherd who takes it all upon himself. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself... This is a good story. Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. What does this mean? My weight matters to Jesus? No. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Again, Jesus is the son of David. We're foreshadowing the coming of Christ. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. He's talking about some of the bully sheep. Hopefully you're not a bully sheep. Pushing the other sheep around. Getting them with your horns. But we have Jesus the shepherd who will sort out these things amongst us and feed us and lead us to places of rest. And I the Lord will be their God and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. My people have been a lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. We also understand that there's an under-shepherding going on in the kingdom, Right? We all lead certain things or lead individuals. We, even, we shepherd our children. We shepherd our families. We have stewardship of things. And sometimes we can go wrong with that. And there we see at the end of the verse, they wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Isn't it cool that God wants you to be at rest? I often don't see God that way. 
And it's such a valuable thing to realize that God is not a slave driver on his throne wanting you to work yourself to death. We need to work. It's a big part of what we do. We're on a mission. But we can do so at a state of rest in our conscience and in our heart because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, it's easy when we talk about sheep to think of the collective, right? When it says we, see, we're not held quite as responsible. It's not me, it's everybody else. It's all these other sheep. When we just talk about us, I don't feel quite as responsible. But suddenly it becomes about me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. This is in the Psalms. We know David went astray sometimes, right? We know that, that people, we all do. But we remember who God is. God, don't forget me. Find me. Seek me. I'm, I'm the lost sheep now. I'm the one of the 99 that needs you. Listen, if you're in that place in your life where you feel like the one, like everybody else has got it together and I'm way off track, you can cry out to God and say, seek me. Find your servant. Help me. He cares that much for you. He knows you. And it says, when you turn your life around, when you turn to Jesus and you repent, all of heaven celebrates. Listen, if you're disconnected from God this morning, if you've been running your own way, if you've decided to be your own shepherd, give it back to God. He's way better at it than you. And he wants you back. And think about that. Even if that were nobody in this room, think of everybody in the community that we know. All the people we have connections with, current believers, former believers, people who have never believed, people that we we use words like have walked away from the faith or backslidden or whatever you want to call it. Jesus wants those people. And he uses you and I to reach them. It's part of our mission. He is the good shepherd. To find that place of peace and of rest. And I, then I think back on Paul's situation. And he was so well-versed and clever and tactful in his ability to reach people. And woo them into this understanding. He traveled all over the world to do it. Psalm 23, famous verse, starts out this way. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he? You know, this gets recited at funerals all the time, which, you know, but it's so appropriate for so many different things. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he? Whenever I I, I read this, it always strikes me. The Lord is my shepherd. I always feel like I'm reminding myself. He is the boss. I am not. You see, we, we we live in a society and a culture where we're so independent and so self-governed, it's, it's my choice. It's my freedom, my destiny, my way, my belief. My, 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 my. And that's not all wrong, I don't think. But we have to be really careful that we, we, we don't forget who the real boss is. Again, we've talked about this throughout this series. Talking about idolatry and things like that. I think probably the most risky idol that we face is ourselves. We have, we're at risk of worshiping ourselves because it's all up to me. But I don't think the scripture lines up with that thinking. 
He is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that in clear conscience? The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, I can. No, I can't. Wait, I'm the boss. I decide what I get to do. I decide what right and wrong are. I decide what my identity is. I decide what career I'm going to have. I decide what my gifts are. Wait a minute. Are you the best shepherd of your life? I don't think so. How about the omnipotent, all-powerful creator of the universe, all things seen and unseen, knowing everything about you? Even He even remembers the things you forgot about you. I, I would suggest submit your life to the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning I, won't, I don't need anything. And, what is, and then what is it going to say? He makes me lie down in green pastures. A picture of peace. A picture of rest. A picture of provision. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's your shepherd. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to encourage you today. If you've not really been letting Jesus be your shepherd, now would be a good time to change your mind and go the other way. We call that repentance. To repent. To leave behind something and move another direction. Jesus, The Bible says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if you're hearing the voice of Jesus in the form of tugging at your heart today, if you feel the goad in the background going, Hey, go this direction. Change course. Or, or maybe, maybe you are walking with God and he's just stirring you a different direction for the next phase of your life. Whatever it is, let him shepherd you. Are you with me, church? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness and mercy. God, we are kind of a funny group of rebel sheep sometimes doesn't really make sense and we're not really good at it and we think we are but Lord I I just thank you for your grace and your loving kindness for us that even when we've done the worst of the worst things it's not beyond your forgiveness that no matter how messed up we can get as sheep Lord you you find us and as the parable says you put us up over your shoulders you carry us back and then you call your friends together to celebrate Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that needs to turn to you. And for all of us that are walking with you, Lord, that we would, we would be compliant sheep with what you want done in the extension of your kingdom and in each of our lives. Lord, I pray you bless each one as they go today with encouragement and strength to live out the lives that you've called for each one. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would like to receive prayer this morning, our prayer team hangs out up over here on my left after the service. Please join them in prayer. Otherwise, go out there, look at those sign up, those groups, sign up for one. Don't be shy. Sign up for a group. They're a lot of fun. We'll see you next week.